Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Manglo Gladi, I'm Assistant Chief Medical Officer for the University of Maryland Medical Center. I'd like to welcome you all today to the Patient Blood Management in the Modern Era program. I'm very excited to be here. And uh, when I was looking at the title and the agenda for the day, I'm a hospitalist by training, and I thought, hmm, I know a little bit about blood management in the modern era, but I don't really know much about the pre-modern era. So as with all good research, I went to Wikipedia, and I found a few interesting facts that I just wanted to share with you this morning. Back in uh, about 1260 AD, there was an Arabic scholar who actually talked about minor circulation in the blood. And there wasn't really much between that time and about 300 years later when we all um, are familiar with what William Harvey described as kind of the major circulatory system that we're all familiar with. Back then in about 1657, the first documented transfusion occurred, and that was from animal to human. And it was uh, a little while later, actually, in the early 19th century, when the first human-to-human -human transfusion was described um, in the literature. So it continues to evolve and develop, and we've seen many changes over the past um, years, especially um, during the 20th century. We've, many of the major advancements have actually been in the light of major military conflicts. Blood management is a multidisciplinary approach. It requires many different people, and it's complicated, and I'm sure we'd all agree with that. And part of the complexity of this process really does pose a lot of patient safety and quality issues that we're all very familiar with. But there are some very good evidence-based guidelines out there. There are some um, newer guidelines around the cost effectiveness and the appropriate use of blood products in our patients. So really, um, I think the agenda today really focuses on um, three big things, the use of the right product for the right patient at the right time. And I think there's a really uh, three critical things um, as you go through today, and some, you know, the speakers, I think, are going to hit on some of, the, some of these points and really share some um, of the modern uh, research on these things. So with that, I'm going to introduce Dr. Fontaine, who's the director of the transfusion, of transfusion medicine here at the medical center. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gulati. So my name is Magali Fontaine. I'm the medical director of the Transfusion Service, and uh, welcome on behalf of the Department of Pathology. And um, we have put together a program really to involve uh, physicians, nurses, uh, medical technologists from the institution to launch this initiative, really, uh, which is going to be an education effort to drive transfusion decision-making on data and, and really uh, on awareness of the adverse events around the transfusion of a blood product and, and, and making physicians aware of, of the fact that blood saves lives but has a, a double-edged sword that we need to be aware of. So with no further delay, I would like to introduce our first speaker Gura Netzer, who is uh, Associate Professor of Medicine, uh, Medical uh, ICU Intensive Care Physician, who uh, trained at uh, University of Pennsylvania and uh, went to medical school here in Philadelphia at Temple. And he's been here uh, at our institution for almost 10 years and has been an advocate of defining triggers uh, on decision-making of red blood cell transfusion again, based on data, and he's going to share his knowledge uh, and his review of the literature, which he actually knows on the top of his fingers. I don't think he even needs his slides today, but welcome, Gura. Thank, 
Uh, thank, thanks, Dr. Fontaine. Thanks, Dr. Galati. Thank the leadership of the University of Maryland uh, for putting this together. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, red cell transfusion today. Uh, going to be primarily focused on the non-hemorrhaging patient. Talk a little bit about the pathophysiology, the physiology of transfusion, observational data, two large randomized clinical trials that help pinion uh, decision-making, uh, a little bit of the meta-analysis of all the pu published randomized clinical trials that are out there, and a little overview of where we are at the University of Maryland. So one, one thing in talking about transfusion is this is an area, at least for me in internal medicine, that we received precious little information about during medical school and during my residency. Uh, we don't talk about transfusion a lot. And I think this quote by Harvey Klein, who's the director of the NIH's intramural blood program, opinions things well, which is despite serious immunologic and non-immunologic complications, red cell transfusion has a therapeutic index exceeding that of many common medications. I think if you walk into our ICU, like most ICUs, with the exception of perhaps antibiotics, transfusion is one of the most widely used therapies we have, and we don't always consider it in terms of its context biologically. Uh, this has become increasingly uh, to the forefront now in hospital medicine. Uh, you may have seen the Choosing Wisely campaign, and among these things is a is a recommendation to avoid arbitrary hemoglobin or hematocrit thresholds. And, I, and although it's coded language, I think what they're talking about is the old 1030 rule, the idea that at a hemoglobin of 10 and a hematocrit of 30, uh, that that's really the place to transfuse. And those are, you know, those are derived from data from the 1940s. And as we talk about transfusion, I think one of the things to talk about is not, uh, as Howard Corrin puts it, the question is not what is the optimal hemoglobin, but what is the optimal hemoglobin at which to transfuse. So one thing that we see a lot in the hospital and in the intensive care unit in particular is anemia. Uh, our patients are anemic for multiple, re for multiple reasons. They have underlying chronic diseases that predispose them to the acute hospitalization. They have anemic, anemia chronic disease. Acutely ill, they have a reduced erythropoietin production by their kidneys. Their marrow is no longer responding in the same way. In addition to them not making blood, we're constantly taking blood. And we do that primarily through phlebotomy. We're phlebotomizing our patients a lot. Uh, estimated daily blood loss from phlebotomy in the ICU is approximately 40 milliliters. Uh, this can be substantially higher if the patient has things like arterial lines. In surgical ICUs, this is also higher. And then additionally, patients are losing blood because they're hemolyzing, they have ongoing GI losses, and then we're constantly doing procedures that cause additional blood loss. So we've got our anemic patients, and then we, we at a certain point, decide we're going to transfuse. And most of us, during our training, have seen or at least were instructed on the different kinds of, of reactions from transfusion. And these are ones where the patient is transfused, there's a direct temporal relationship, and we recognize that transfusion had an adverse effect on the patient's well-being and health. And so I hope that none of us have seen an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. These are, these are never events. These are from ABO mismatch. But other events that we see, febrile non-hemolytic reactions, delayed hemolytic reactions, anaphylactic and urticarial reactions, and post-transfusion purpura, they're ones that we recognize, and they're ones that we see immediately, and they're all immunologically mediated. One thing I want us to think about, though, is there are patients in which the immunologic ramifications of transfusion are readily apparent. These patients at the bedside, we've seen. But in the patients who are transfused, there are immunologically mediated reactions that we don't always see and that we don't always appreciate. This is one that we do appreciate quickly at the bedside. The patient is given some plasma. You return to the bedside, and what you find is the patient now has a diffuse non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, transfusion-related acute lung injury. But one of the things we need to recognize is that there is a whole spectrum of transfusion-related immunomodulation and transfusion-mediated effects. When we talk to our patients' families or talk to our patients, we say, we need, you need to get a transfusion. Their first question is, well, can't I get a disease from that? Uh, and while it's certainly true that 
every bloodborne disease has been associated with transmission through transfusion, uh, including more recently diseases such as babesiosis and West Nile virus. Uh, the ones that people are worried about are HIV and, and hepatitis in particular. And what you can see is that in terms of us thinking about our risk-benefit relationship of transfusing, that these diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C, since universal screening and PCR, these are actually very unlikely events, right? In the same way we wouldn't make our decision-making around lightning strikes, I don't want that to be the thing that we think about in terms of risk-benefit analysis. You can see that other, the other more apparent reactions at the bedside, such as transfusion-related acute lung injury, trolley, or one of my favorite eponyms, TACO, right, transfusion-associated circulatory overload, and fever are much more common. One thing about transfusion is it's an incredibly complex biological entity, and I'm talking here about red cell transfusion. We're also going to talk later in the day about platelets and plasma as well. But red cell transfusion on paper, in the way I was originally instructed, is a great thing to transfuse, right? Erythrocytes are these beautiful cells. They don't have nuclei. They don't present antigen, and they carry oxygen, and everybody knows that oxygen is good. Um, in hemorrhage, these things are certainly true, and transfusion is life-saving. And at a certain point with critical anemia, that's also true. However, there's a lot of other things going on in a bag of red cell transfusate. So one of the things that makes you know, hemoglobin, or, or I should say erythrocytes, appealing is that they don't have nuclei also means that they're more prone to degradation. They can't repair, they can't repair damage. So you get oxidative stress, and with that you get hemoglobin degradation products. Uh, those are very potent free radical initiators. They, the, rheologically, the cells become stiffer. There's concern they may sludge the microvasculature. Right? You also get iron degradation products, which are inflammatory. And then the real thing that happens also is that that unit of red cells doesn't just contain red cells. It contains leukocytes. Leukocytes present antigen. And so you have a presentation of antigen to a new host, making it effectively a non-HLA-matched liquid tissue trans transplant. Uh, and so first is you get an inflammatory response and then immune downregulation. And then also these leukocytes, when they're in storage, are elucidating all the things that leukocytes like to do. So for example, they're making histamines, they're, they're elucidating complement, they're making bradykinins, uh, they are making cytokines, right? They're, they are creating an inflammatory milieu within the transfusate itself. And the, the leukocytes themselves, right, the bioactive lipid layer around the, the mem cell membrane of the leukocytes contains lysophosphatylcholine. You take lysophosphatylcholine, you spin it down, you give it to lab animals, they get, they get ARDS, they get lung injury. You take a look at patients who develop trolley, and you go back and take a look at the units of blood products they receive, they're high in, in levels of lysophosphatylcholine. So it's very clear that you get a, a high, as we mentioned, a high inflammatory milieu. And these are some older data here that you can see that plasma over time elucidates more cytokines. And this is an interesting study looking at red cells. And so you can see here, these are red cells in, in additive solution. And you can see that in addition to things that we talk about commonly on our rounds, like potassium, uh, you're getting lactate, uh, you're getting free you know, hemoglobin, you're getting hemoglobin degradation products. Uh, and you're getting phosphatidylserine expression, and phosphatidylserine should be expressed on the inside of the cell membrane. And during oxidative stress, gets on the outside, makes those red cells sticky, and may make them sludge in the microvasculature as well. So if you're asking people, hey, how would you like a lactate and free radical infusion, the answer is probably, well, if I really need it, okay, but um, probably not if you don't have to. And when we talk about this whole entity of, of immune modulation, we give it the, the eponym, Right, everything in medicine needs an eponym of uh, transfusion-related immunomodulation. 
This slide is, is a scattering of varied effects. It's by no means comprehensive, and for immunologists in this audience, it will be hopeless. Um, but just as an overview, you get almost every cell type in the immune cascade gets some sort of, of impact from transfusion. Natural killer cells get downregulated. Right? If you look at lymphocyte function, downregulated. The percentage of circulating CD4 uh, positive cells goes down. Neutrophil chemotaxis is affected. All the cells in the immune cascade all take a hit from transfusion. And to give you an idea of the magnitude of this sort of idea, and I, I get back to this idea of a non-HLA matched liquid tissue transplant, now, this is an interesting study out of UCSF that took veterans who had been injured in combat uh, during the major conflicts of the United States in the 20th century and received transfusion. And what you can see is that a, a proportion of them are carrying around somebody else's DNA 50 or 60 years after they were transfused. Right? Almost one in six, one in seven Korean War veterans who was transfused has been walking around for 50 years with somebody else's DNA circulating through their bodies from that transfusion. So the question is, hey, all these things are going on because there's white cells along in the erythrocyte transfusate, in the red cell transfusate. You take out the white cells, everything is going to be great. That's true to a certain extent, but not fully. So this notion certainly is not new. This is leukoreduction. Uh, leukoreduction is universally implemented in Canada through most of Europe uh, and through almost entirely the entirety of the U.S. blood supply. But one thing about leukoreduction is it's not leukoelimination. So if you think about it, when you collect, you go, to the, you go to your Red Cross blood drive, you go ahead and you're a donor, that unit of cells that comes out of your arm has about 2 billion leukocytes. After processing, most of those are still in there. And then we go ahead and leukoreduce at the bedside. We get a logarithmic reduction. But even after that, we're still left with over a million leukocytes. Um, with better leukoreduction process practices, we can get lower. But even with the very best laboratory leukoreduction, which at the time, this time isn't clinically feasible, we'll still end up with about 5,000 leukocytes per transfusion. All of those are presenting antigen. And it looks like that residual load is immunosuppressive. One thing to also point out that is even with autologous blood transplant, there's still an inflammatory load uh, that occurs probably from some of those things that we talked about, about red cells uh, and degrading in leukocytes and storage. Uh, we looked at uh, red cell supernatant. We looked at the plasma that's left when we spin red cells in additive solution. We looked in vitro at three cell lines associated with the pathogenesis of the acute respiratory distress syndrome. And what you can see is when you, when you give them all a little dab of, of red, cell, uh, red cell plasma, the plasma left in the red cell transfusate, you can see that IL-6, cytokine interleukin-6, uh, goes up, suggesting additional inflammation. Not surprisingly, in observational data, you can see very consistently a signal uh, showing that transfusions associated with the development of the acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a, a devastating non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, causes death by multi-organ failure in probably 150,000 cases a year in the U.S. Uh, you can see in this interesting study by the Cornet Group, in which this is patients with uh, lung injury, ARDS by Berlin uh, consensus, and you can see that after they get transfused, their, their ratio of PaO2 over FiO2 uh, decreases, so their, their AA gradient, their effective oxygenation is going down, and their lung injury score also increases, showing worsening lung injury. And study work that I did a while back, uh, we looked at patients who had ARDS who were transfused, and very consistently we could see that the, the increased risk of uh, the odds risk of death was about 5 to 6 percent per unit transfused. Similarly, increased mortality across the board. Is it, you know, question inflammation? Is it immunosuppression? Uh, very consistently study to study, increased harm. 
Now, obviously, one issue is these are observational data. And observational data, the question is, is it because the transfusion was bad? Or, hey, who's, gonna get, who's more likely to get transfused in an ICU or in the hospital? Somebody who's got more marrow suppression or more, worse anemia when they walk in the door? Or somebody who's done worse and needs more blood because of it? So for that reason, right, we really want a randomized clinical trial for everything. I'm going to seek volunteers for enrollment for this trial. Come see me afterwards if you'd like to enroll. And really the trial that helps set a lot of our framing of this discussion is the transfusion requirement in critical care trial. Right, so the TRIC trial is now a decade and a half old. This is a really elegant Canadian multicenter trial. Came out a little bit after the NIH began to promulgate guidelines for reduced hemoglobin thresholds. Took over 800 medical and surgical patients in the ICU who were anemic. Excluded patients who were actively bleeding and randomized them to either a restrictive transfusion strategy, which is when your hemoglobin was below 7 grams per deciliter, I'd give you one unit to maintain you between 7 and 9, or a liberal strategy in which I'd transfuse one unit for hemoglobin of 10.0 or less to maintain you between 10 and 12. I think it bears saying in this day and age that the term liberal here does not have any political portent, but simply describes a transfusion strategy. So what did the trick trials show? Well, if you look at these numbers, Mortality was the primary endpoint, and I've highlighted it here. In the TRIC trial, uh, they failed to reject the null hypothesis. I have to say that, uh, having done some epidemiology training. But essentially, what does this mean here when we look at it? It's a, it's a reasonably well-powered trial. It looks like across the board, people did at least as well with a restrictive transfusion strategy. May have done better. You can also see here in the uh, similar signal in the multi-organ dysfunction score. The overall, uh, the overall numbers here are up top. Uh, you can see that there is improved survival with 7 grams per deciliter. This did not reach traditional uh, standards of significance. But you can see here in subgroup analysis uh, that patients seem to do better reaching statistical significance. Now, one caveat with subgroup analysis is it's fraught with peril. Uh, it should be approached at its own risk. Um, but you can see here that patients with Apaches, that lower Apaches, so lower acuity, and patients who are younger uh, seem to do better in this met traditional, traditional standards of significance. Uh, there was less acute respiratory distress syndrome in patients who were restrict restrictively transfused. That's consistent with the biological plausibilities that we talked about earlier. So when I look at the TRIC trial, what's my take home is patients do at least as well with seven, a restrictive strategy, seven grams per deciliter versus 10, and I should transfuse one unit at a time to maintain them between seven grams and nine grams of, uh, per deciliter of hemoglobin. And in my younger patients uh, and in my less acutely ill patients, this may be even more significant. So one thing that bears discussing, though, is this entire notion of, of hemoglobin th of triggers or thresholds. Um, we, in clinical medicine, think in terms of algorithms, and we like those numbers. And this is an interesting study that was out of, uh, out of Quebec, basically a big orthopedic service, and they looked at orthopedic patients that were transfused. You could look at any number of predictors, but in the end, there's really one thing at the bedside that guided transfusion or when a patient got transfused, and that was what their hemoglobin was, what their AM hemoglobin was. So one issue here is we think in terms of triggers. We're going to get to a point where we're thinking well past triggers, but we should start thinking about that now, which is that the host response and the host tolerance to anemia varies widely. Okay? And one thing is that in healthy people, anemia is actually very well tolerated. Uh, these are data out of UCSF. They took a group of medical students, right? What medical student doesn't want a couple of extra dollars? They took them and basically gave them isovolemic anemia. So they spun off, they spun off their erythrocytes and they gave them crystalloid. Uh, and what you can see here is um, the hemoglobin in grams per deciliter is down here. 
at the bottom, they basically took them to five grams per deciliter. And if these med students at five grams per deciliter had no lactate production, they had no change in their oxygen consumption, they had no EKG changes, they had no troponin leaks. Physiologically, from a cardiovascular standpoint, they tolerated the anemia just fine. At the same time, patients may not tolerate anemia that well, and a patient may become symptomatic at a much higher hemoglobin in spite of whether we use a trick threshold or any other evidence-based threshold. And so some patients will develop symptoms, and those symptoms are things like chest pain, cardiac chest pain, new congestive heart failure, unexplained tachycardia, and hypotension. And that's hypotension that's not responsive to fluid in the absence of another reason to explain it, such as sepsis. So one issue is we need to be thinking about the relationship between numerical triggers and symptomology. And I think this quote by Jeff Carson uh, kind of sums that up very nicely. Jeff Carson's at UD, UMDNJ and has done a, a, the large brunt of a lot of this uh, data, or these data, which is to keep in mind there are limited trial uh, data available to guide transfusion decisions, and that up this time the lowest threshold has been tested is seven grams per deciliter. If that magic level is reached, do not pull the trigger right away. Do a quick history and physical exam. If the patient is clinically stable, hold off transfusing the patient. It's likely that the patient will do fine without blood. If you look at guidelines for major organizations, the American Red, the American Red Cross, the American Society of Anesthesiology, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the Eastern Association for the Study of Trauma, all of them basically say if the patient's asymptomatic, you can hold off on transfusing until the patient really reaches an absolute hemoglobin threshold of six grams per deciliter. One of the questions that comes up is, well, okay, you showed me the trick trial, but what about my patients with cardiovascular disease? They need a different hemoglobin threshold. And a lot of this stems from the first idea is that the host response to anemia, the tolerance of anemia is going to be less because you can't vasodilate and you may not be able to pick up your heart rate in the same way to maintain adequate perfusion. And a lot of it's also from observational data, such as this one right here by Jeff Carson. These are, this, this is a cohort of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. So Jehovah's Witnesses refuse transfusion based on their religious convictions. And so when they go to, to surgery, this is a natural history experiment. So if you look at Jehovah's Witnesses patients going to surgery, you can see that patients without cardiovascular disease seem to do pretty well in spite of increasingly severe anemia. However, patients with cardiovascular disease seem to have an inflection point in their mortality right at about the ubiquitous and old 10 grams per deciliter. So a lot of people said, hey, you know, trick that more restrictive strategy is not going to work for cardiovascular disease. So people then looked and tried to parse out what they could do with the trick trial. And so the trick trial, as we said, had 838 patients. There was a category uh, of ischemic heart disease. In that one, there was a non-statistically significant slight increase in mortality. But when you look at all-cause cardiovascular disease in the TRIC trial, what you can see is that the, uh, that the outcomes are virtually identical. Now, this is a subgroup analysis. Uh, this study was not designed to answer transfusion thresholds in patients with coronary artery disease, and it wasn't powered to do so. So what's the answer, as we know? Right? Whether it's parachutes or transfusion triggers, it's a randomized clinical trial. So the FOCUS trial was initiated. Uh, Michael Tarrant, who's a member of our faculty here, uh, was instrumental in designing this study. And basically, this is a U.S. and Canadian multicenter trial looking at the question of patients with cardiovascular disease. Over 2,000 patients undergoing hip fracture surgery. Uh, they either had cardiovascular disease or an established cardiovascular disease equivalent, and they were all anemic. And they got randomized to one of two strategies, the traditional liberal strategy that you saw previously in the TRIC trial, and a restrictive strategy, which was 8 grams per deciliter of hemoglobin or symptomatic. 
Um, why not seven? You know, one of the reasons was to maintain equipoise and to find orthopods. Uh, they just couldn't find orthopods with enough equipoise for seven, so the, the Solomonic solution of eight grams per deciliter or symptomatic was achieved. So one question when you look at any randomized clinical trial is, okay, you guys did a nice trial, but is it comparable to my patients, and how does it compare? And this is sort of a busy slide, um, but what I just want you to look at are really two things. So the first is the average age in this trial was 82 years of age, right? This is an old group of patients, and this is a sick group of patients. And this isn't just hip fracture, this is old and sick hip fracture. 82 years of age, right? The majority have known coronary artery disease or cardiovascular disease, and the remainder have cardiovascular disease equivalents. I think for almost everyone in this room, we'd have to agree this is a compelling group and similar to any patients that we have with cardiovascular disease. They presented their data very clearly, and what's important is by using this protocol, did they actually achieve different hemoglobin levels? Because if everyone ended up the same place, the results don't mean very much. And you can see, indeed, the group in the, in the conservative strategy received less blood and had lower daily hemoglobins. So what were the outcomes? Well, first is they used a composite outcome. So that's basically combining two things into one outcome that increases the power to detect differences between the two treatments. And what you can see is the two parts of that, which is death or the ability to walk independently, failed to reject the null hypothesis, so negative, no difference between the two groups. The two components of that, inability to walk and death, also no difference. No difference in myocardial infarction, unstable angina, troponin elevation, stroke, ICU transfer, or new radiographic infiltrate. And one thing that was very important to the investigators was to come up with data where people wouldn't say that there was a, a problem in ascertainment of the outcomes. In other words, it wasn't, un, it wasn't unblinded, right? You knew when people were going to be transfused or not. So they drew serial cardiac enzymes, serial EKGs, and then had them read by blinded observers in a separate location. So these are all compelling data. People did not do better at 10 grams per deciliter versus 8 grams per deciliter. If you look at the multitude of randomized clinical trials, including a lot of smaller trials that we didn't look at, it's a very consistent signal, transfusing less, at least as good, if not better. And also very clear, trans, you know, is a restrictive transfusion strategy means you use less blood, right? A reduction of transfusion risk of 39% and reducing the volume of transfusion by 1.19 units per patient. Now, I didn't go into medicine to concentrate on saving money. But if you tell me that I'm going to improve outcomes and I can save money along the way, to me that's, that's a compelling, even more compelling impetus. Similarly here, randomized clinical trials, meta-analysis, randomized clinical trials, not observational data, recently published in JAMA out of, with the Michigan HSR group, a restrictive transfusion strategy reduces the case rate of health-associated, healthcare-associated infections. Right, so how can you improve care? Uh, I thank Dr. Stubbs for being here. I, I apologize in advance that I'm going to show some of, of the Mayo data. I hope I don't steal his thunder. I suspect there's plenty of thunder to go around um, looking at their experience. But basically, um, starting uh, in the mid-2000s, the Mayo basically said, we're going to really concentrate on reducing blood use. And so this is, this is um, Augie Gaik's data, who's one of the intensivists there. If you wanted to order blood in their ICU, right, you're a house officer in 2005, 2006, and you just want to order some blood for your patient, uh, it takes you through a bewildering number of steps. Are you in the ICU? Uh, if you are, is the hemoglobin above 7? Because if the hemoglobin is above 7, we'd like to know why you're deviating from good evidence. And then you'd have to give a reason why. This was combined with intensive interdisciplinary education and also uh, an a effort to codify 
tidal volumes on mechanical ventilation to an ARDS net adherent six mils per kg predictive body weight. That's a, that's a low pressure, low stretch technique that improves outcomes in ARDS. And what you can see here is that indeed uh, the, the amount of transfusion went down in their ICUs, significantly in the medical and mixed ICUs. And what you can see here in this snapshot uh, was that the incidence of ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, also went down. Now, one thing that this I find very interesting is, are these data, which is if you're in Rochester, Minnesota, and you get sick, there's one place to go for critical care, and that's the Mayo, which means that you can use population-based data to actually give a true epidemiologic incidence rather than just a case rate. And if you look at this, basically the, the rate of community-acquired ARDS, or the incidence, has bounced around um, throughout the decade of the 2000, the first decade of the 2000s. But hospital-acquired ARDS, which is a reflection of hospital course and hospital therapies, you can see that the Mayo basically eliminated hospital-acquired ARDS by being careful with the way they ventilate patients and being careful with the way that they transfuse patients as an interdisciplinary effort. Right. How are things going here in the state of Maryland? Uh, these are state of Maryland data out of uh, the analysis out of Hopkins when David Murphy was over there that we worked on. And basically, looking over time, we're actually transfusing more in the state of Maryland over this time period. This is from administrative data, so it isn't that granular. But what you can see is that in, uh, in higher volume hospitals, uh, whereas we're transfusing more, there seems to be an increase in acuity. And if you adjust for it, um, what does that mean? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe yes, it's administrative data might have gone down. But in smaller volume hospitals, right, not only is the rate of uh, the rate of transfusion going up, it doesn't seem to have any association with increased uh, acuity. Uh, at Maryland, we looked at our data uh, in the medical intensive care unit. Um, the good news was that we had decreases in time. It seemed to relate uh, in terms of velocity to the publication of the TRIC trial. So the good news was that our, our transfusion rate, our proportion transfused did go down. Uh, the nadir hemoglobin seemed to go down over that time. Uh, and the transfusion threshold at which we transfused patients also seemed to go down. Uh, the, the good news was we got down. The bad news was that this, by the way, excluded patients with acute coronary syndromes and patients with hemorrhaging. Um, we didn't get to full ad adherence with TRIC. Uh, it varies in our institution. This is data, these are data out of the pediatric intensive care unit. It looked like that, that practice also changed after publication of the TRIC trial but the publication of pediatric-specific randomized clinical trials, such as Tripicu and Pint, both out of that Ottawa group of Paul Bear and his colleagues, uh, didn't seem to change further. So transfusion rates went down, but didn't continue to come down. And similarly, the, the uh, pre-transfusion hemoglobin uh, did not seem to come down past a certain point. So how do we transfuse in our patients? Uh, basically, I, I think one thing is looking at the overview of the randomized clinical trials and of professional societies for asymptomatic patients, right? If they're symptomatic, you're going to transfuse regardless of the hemoglobin. But for asymptomatic patients, the TRIC trial, wait till you get below 7 grams per deciliter. That's the recommendation of the American Association of Blood Banking as well. Uh, SECM East, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the Eastern Association for Study of Trauma, uh, basically say don't use a, a firm trigger, but use less than seven. And the American Society of Anesthesiology and the American Red Cross both say if they're asymptomatic, um, there's no mandatory transfusion until they're down to a hemoglobin of six grams per deciliter. Looking at the coronary artery disease literature, I think focus is very clear. Uh, eight grams per deciliter or symptomatic. Uh, extrapolating with TRIC trial uh, below seven grams per deciliter or symptomatic. 
I think if you're within these thresholds, there's, there's room for an active and healthy debate, but these are all numbers that reflect a restrictive approach to transfusion based in data. Um, regardless of the exact point at which you decide to transfuse any individual patient, give one unit. Right? We, don't, we didn't get taught in medical school, if you're going to give 50 milligrams of metoprolol, you might as well give 100, or if you're going to give 10 milligrams of atorvastatin, you might as well give 20. In the same way, transfuse one unit, reassess the patient, reassess the numeric hemoglobin, reassess the signs and symptoms of anemia, and then decide if you need another. Uh, I want to thank the, the group here at University of Maryland. Uh, been had a great time and very productive transfusion uh, uh, management group here. Also, Jason Christie, University of Pennsylvania, and John Hess, who was here for many years and who's now at the University of Washington. Uh, and I don't know, I'm sure if we have any questions, but feel free to email me. I'm also bowing to, to technological pressure, now have a Twitter feed. Uh, and uh, certainly there's room for active debate, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Thank you.